Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speak. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, making pig organs more compatible for human transplantation. And why our brains find it harder to count more than four objects. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Organ transplantation from donor to recipients is an established clinical practice. But around the world, there is a chronic shortage of available organs. This leaves many people on transplant waiting lists who run the risk of dying while they wait to receive a suitable organ. One long-sought solution to make up this shortfall is the use of animal organs. But it's been a struggle to get animal-to-human transplants, known as xenotransplants, into a clinical setting, due to the rejection issues caused by things like the complexities of the human immune system and concerns about the potential for disease transmission. However, in the past couple of years, there have been huge strides in things like gene editing, and the first pig-to-human heart transplant, which happened in early 2022, spurring the field on. And this week in Nature, there's a paper that reports on the successful transplantation of kidneys from pigs to monkeys. These kidneys have been engineered to be closer to their human counterparts, and this research could help overcome some of the hurdles associated with xenotransplantation and may have important implications for future human trials. Nature reporter Max Kozlov has been following the story, and he joins me now. Max, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, doing okay. Thank you so much for joining me today. So we've got a story then about xenotransplantation, so transplanting organs from one species to another. And this is something that's been talked about and researched for decades, I think it's fair to say, but it's been getting a lot of attention recently. What's the state of the field at the moment? Yeah, so the reason why a lot of researchers and clinicians are excited about this is there is an enormous waiting list for organs. And specifically, pigs have been a species that researchers have honed in on. And that's because the organs are roughly a similar size to human organs. We know a lot about the pig genome, so it's easy to edit it. And they don't take a very long time to grow. Their gestation period isn't very long. 
So all of those things make pigs an ideal species to be doing xenotransplantation research on. And there's been a couple of stories recently of hearts being transplanted from pigs into humans, although in one case the person receiving the organ did pass away a few months after the operation. So it seems like that's not the end of the story. There's a lot more complications just yet. There have been a few one-off cases in that they're not being studied in a systematic way in the context of a randomized control trial. So researchers and clinicians and regulators are all gearing up toward starting phase one trials where we can start to evaluate this in a systematic way. But getting to those phase one human trials requires, of course, a lot of background research. And this week, there's a paper that's shown that engineered pig kidneys can be implanted into non-human primates and can last, in some cases, a very long time. But before we get to that and the results, maybe we can talk a little bit about the pigs that they used in this research. Yeah, they used miniature pigs, so they're much smaller than normal pigs. And not only are the pigs smaller, but the organs are smaller too. And one of the problems is when you take these organs and put them in a larger animal, say a monkey, the organs will grow with the animal. And sometimes you don't want the organs to grow that much. And so one technique has been to knock out a gene that is responsible for a growth hormone So that kind of tamps down the growth of the organs, but it can lead to some other unwanted side effects. So instead of doing that, their technique here was to use a smaller pig species. And because it's a smaller pig species, organs just naturally grow at a slower pace. So it was kind of a clever way to get around that problem. And these pigs then have had their genomes engineered. And this work sort of pulled together a bunch of different strands of research. Yes, And they edited 69 different genes in the pig genome. The bulk edit out this kind of virus. They're called porcine endogenous retroviruses. And they linger in the pig genome and under the right circumstances could kick back up again and potentially cause damage to the organ or patient receiving it. It's still unclear to what extent that's actually a problem. But again, the bulk of those edits were to lower the possibility of those reactivating. And then they also moved some human genes into the porcine genome. These help protect the cells that line the blood vessels and prevent the blood from clotting when you don't want it to. And then on top of that, there are certain antigens They're basically these molecules that the immune system recognizes as foreign and starts to attack them. It basically removed the genes that encode the enzymes that produce them, lowering the chances that the immune system will go haywire if these organs are transplanted into humans or non-human primates. And so that's what's happened here. And these kidneys from these engineered pigs have been transplanted into a type of monkey, the Sinomulgus monkey. What happened? What they found was when they transplanted these kidneys into the primates, some of them were able to survive more than a year and one even survived more than two years, which is, I think, the longest survival of a non-human primate with a pig-derived organ. But there are some that didn't make it to a year. And that's one of the things that the lead researcher pointed out is there was more variation than they were expecting in how long these primates were surviving. I've talked to other researchers in the field who weren't surprised by that result. And that's because In this study, they used human transgenes, not non-human primate transgenes. So it's not a surprise necessarily that, you know, these genes aren't optimized for use in these specific species. But regulators want to see that you have 
tried every single gene edit that you want to put in humans in a non-human primate or in an animal model. And that's part of the reason they needed to still test them, even if they weren't optimized for the non-human primates. And one thing that stood out to me then, Max, is that the monkeys also still had to take immunosuppression drugs, which suggests that even though the kidneys were engineered to remove these antigens then, these molecules that the immune system attacks, there's more to understand about potential rejection, say. Yeah, you're right. So some researchers are very optimistic that one day we'll find the specific gene edits necessary to prevent all immunosuppressive drugs altogether. And that would be huge because We use immunosuppression and it works to prevent rejection, but it also leaves your body very vulnerable to other potential pathogens and can take a toll on the body as well. So that is their ultimate goal. But in this study, they still did use immunosuppressive drugs. As we discussed, there's a lot that still needs to be figured out about this, you know, technical hurdles to overcome and ethical discussions to be had as well. What are the researchers you've spoken to hope for this field and where it's going to progress to? I mean, they're very encouraged by these results. And I think that this is one step closer to human trials. I mean, I think a lot of the researchers I talked to are itching to start human trials because it's been instructive to do this in non-human primates, but some of the kinks that they need to iron out need to be done in humans. And they're saying that, you know, at a certain point, because people are dying, not getting the organs that they need, at a certain point, if we know that this technique, xenotransplantation, has a reasonable likelihood of success that it is almost an ethical imperative to begin trials, is what they're saying. Whether or not regulators agree, you know, I think that this will be a conversation in the next couple of years. But I think researchers are hopeful that by the end of the decade, this will be something that is being tested seriously in humans. That was Nature's Max Kozlov there. To read his story about the new paper, look out for a link in the show notes. Coming up, the neurons that help us count things. Before then, though, it's time for the research highlights with Noah Baker. New research is getting to the bottom of how the littlest children are able to combat SARS-CoV-2. A pandemic's worth of research has painted an increasingly clear picture of how the immune system of adults and older children respond to the virus. But much less is known about the response in babies. To plug the gap, a team in the US tracked immune responses in 54 young children, most of whom had been infected with SARS-CoV-2 before the age of two. In adults and older children, antibody levels in the blood spike after infection and then plummet. By contrast, whilst babies saw no drop in antibodies for nearly a year, the level of antibodies they produced tended to be lower, as did the size of the T-cell response. However, the researchers also found unusually strong immune responses in the noses of babies. This could give them the ability to stop SARS-CoV-2 in its tracks in the upper airways, which the researchers say could explain why babies tend to have milder infections. You can find that paper in Cell. A new 3D printing technique is allowing scientists to build minuscule objects using a sort of molecular glue, opening the door to new materials that were previously off-limits. Conventional 3D printing works best with metals and plastics because atoms in these materials effortlessly form chemical bonds with each other. But a team of researchers in China set out to expand this repertoire. 
They use nanometer scale crystals of various semiconductors, metal oxides, and metals to make liquid inks, mixed with a chemical additive. Then they fired short laser pulses at the mixture, which caused the additive to form reactive atoms. These behaved like a glue, binding together molecules found on the surface of the nanocrystals and causing the liquid ink to solidify wherever the laser beam was focused. By guiding this laser through the liquid, the authors could create complex structures, such as a model of the Eiffel Tower. They were even able to print objects from a mixture of materials, paving the way for the printing of complete electronic devices. You can find more on that in Science. Finally on the show, it's time for the briefing chat, the part of the show where we discuss a couple of stories highlighted in the Nature Briefing. And Shamini, why don't you go first this week? What have you got? Okay, so I've been learning to count this week. We're back to basics. <laughs> it's a news article in Nature Human Behaviour. And yeah, it's all about how our brains count things and particularly why it's harder to very quickly estimate a large number of things compared to if there's only very few things. I was trying to sort of think of a suitable example and it's just before lunch today so I'm a bit peckish so my example is going to be cupcakes you walk past the tray of cupcakes at a conference you glance at it and someone says oh oh how many cupcakes are there left if there's three or four cupcakes you could probably at a quick glance really quickly just know the number of cupcakes that were left on that tray yeah when it gets to more, even five? I mean, what do you think, Ben? Do you recognise that sort of just having to spend slightly longer counting as it goes higher up, maybe even from five, six? Yeah, I mean, I guess so. With those smaller numbers, you've got that kind of instantaneous, okay, there's three of those there, right? But when there's more, I suppose, yeah, it does take a bit of time. So what's going on there then? The question has always been, is it just that it gets harder the higher numbers? If you see, you know, 20 cupcakes on a trade, that's going to take you a little while and your estimate's going to be a bit rough probably versus if there are four of them or is there actually something different going on in our heads Mm. when we count a small number of things versus a big number of things and so researchers didn't know this then it's the neuronal basis of it all that we don't know so you can observe the behavior and you can measure how long it takes people to you know count dots on a screen and see the sort of slight disparity in times and see that increasing as you get longer but yeah is it sort of continuous is it the same process in our brains that's counting any numbers or the other theory are there two different mechanisms neuronal mechanisms that we're using to assess the numbers Right. And this is what the researchers have figured out in this new paper, which of the two it is. Exactly. So they've done some previous research showing that you've got neurons in your head that respond to particular numbers of things. And in this new research, they wanted to dive into that further. So what they did was they had patients with microelectrodes in their heads already due to getting some surgery for seizures. And then they showed them screens with series of dots on. They sort of flashed it up for half a second, anywhere from zero to nine dots, and then said, was that an odd number of dots or an even number of dots? Okay. And as you'd expect, they were better when it was four or fewer dots. Much more precise answers tended to be a little less precise. Occasionally got it wrong when it was five or more. And then the key thing was, let's look at the neuronal activity, which neurons are firing when you're looking at these different numbers. 
And yes, what they found was the answer to that question seems to be that there's two slightly different mechanisms at play here. So there's the small number neuronal system and the big number neuronal system. Yeah, and it seems when you've got these neurons that are like, it's three, it's four, as you go higher up in the counting, those neurons are less selective. So if you have a neuron that responds to three, it'll only respond to three. It'll only fire when it sees three of something and the same for all the other three neurons. But if you have neurons that respond to eight, they might also fire on seven, on nine. They're a little bit less specifically selective to one number. Mm. And that's why people then make more mistakes when they're trying to count a larger number of objects. And they haven't sort of elucidated the full system, exactly what's going on where, but it does suggest these two distinct number systems, which one of the authors says he was actually quite surprised by. He'd been one of the people who thought, you know, there's only one mechanism. He said, I had a hard time believing that there's really this dividing line, but based on these data, I must accept it. Well, that certainly is a neat one and one that I will keep in mind next time I'm trying to work out how many cupcakes left on a tray. But let's move on to the second story this week. And I identified that number very quickly, (laughs) but it couldn't be more different. And it's something I read about in Nature. And it's about the European Space Agency's Euclid Space Observatory, which has been, well, performing some unexpected pirouettes in space, which have threatened the craft's ability to do what it was launched to do. That sounds a bit worrying. Like, ESA have launched a craft that's just sort of spinning off through space uncontrollably. Well, thankfully not uncontrollably, it has to be said, but there were some subtleties that had to be looked at. Now, Euclid was launched into space on the 1st of July this year, and it currently is 1.5 million kilometres away from Earth, right? And it's up there to help researchers understand why the universe's expansion is accelerating, okay? And the way that it plans to do this is to map the positions of 1.5 billion galaxies in three dimensions, looking beyond the Milky Way, right? But to do this, it's going to have to photograph some of the darkest patches of the sky, right? And it's got really faint stars. And to make sure it's pointing the right way, it has to use known positions of these stars, which were taken from a previous mission, and then adjust its position accordingly. Okay, so it is very important when looking at these distant stars that it is pointing at the right stars. Yeah, exactly right. So it has to be pointing the right way. And that's actually quite a a hard thing to do, right? It requires some quite high precision manoeuvres for more than 10 minutes at a time while it takes its images. But this hasn't exactly gone according to plan. So initial tests showed that in some cases, the telescope was wobbling, okay? It couldn't stay stable, which is these pirouettes, okay? And this was leading to test images with these kind of loopy trails of stars right you imagine a a long exposure photograph if you have a point of light it kind of gets smeared across the photo right like a child's scribble i guess and these pictures it took are kind of beautiful really and if you look for a link in the show notes you can see one but obviously if you're trying to do precision measurements of where galaxies are that is not ideal yeah not so good loopy little motion blurs does sound pretty though do they know why it's failing to sort of stabilize well actually yes and thankfully it's been fixed as well so oh. the team behind the spacecraft sprung into action right to diagnose what was going on and it turned out that these sensors in the pointing system right which made it point the right way these take periodic two second exposures right and they match it to the previous map to make sure it's like constantly facing the right way but the sensors are also absolutely bombarded by energetic particles things like cosmic rays okay oh and very quickly the software on this spacecraft in like less than 100 milliseconds has to filter these out so it can make sure it's only looking at the real stars not these other artifacts and 
it was getting confused and it was losing the guiding stars and mistaking this cosmic noise for faint stars in dark patches of sky. Oh, well, okay. So like a really noisy image full of lots of random lights and you have to figure out the, which one's the one that you're looking for, basically. Yeah. And what they've done is, in this case, they've updated the system so it can filter these out appropriately. And it does seem to be working. But there's actually more to this story. They fixed another problem as well. In early test images, tiny amounts of stray light were getting into the telescope for an unknown reason because this telescope is shielded, has got a sun shield and it's got multiple layers of insulation and it turned out that there's a thruster sitting on the side of the spacecraft that's not protected by the sun shield and when it was facing at certain angles sunlight was bouncing off a one centimetre squared patch of this thruster that wasn't painted black bouncing off the sun shield and making its way to the side of the telescope where these super sensitive cameras were picking it up. And it turns out that just really slightly tilting the spacecraft, 2.5 degrees adjustment has meant that this problem has gone away. So the levels of precision we're talking a million and a half kilometres away from Earth is staggering, really. And it's lucky that they were able to fix both of those because I guess the first one... It's the software, isn't it? So it's not something physically wrong. So they can then update how it's filtering. And then the second one, yeah, thank goodness that the slight tweak fixes the light bouncing issue and doesn't break something else because it's a bit late to go back and paint your one centimetre patch black. It's going to be a tricky one, right? And, and one of the researchers quoted in the article was saying that we heard about these problems and it sounded like these things were going to work out, but it's always an immense relief when it does, which I can certainly imagine. And so testing can now be restarted and scientific work is due to start potentially in November. And the first results are expected in 2025 and a little bit later for the kind of the full 3D map. And hopefully it'll tell researchers more about sort of dark energy and dark matter, which researchers don't know much about, which could help maybe explain why the universe's expansion, as I say, is accelerating. Well, mysterious dark matter and the expanding universe sounds like the kind of things we shall undoubtedly be reporting on here on The Nature Podcast. Mm. And in the meantime, you can check out the links to these particular stories in the show notes. And also you can sign up to The Nature Briefing and find out where we get all these cool stories from. And that's all for this week. As always, you can keep in touch with us on X. We're at Nature Podcast, or you can send an email to podcast at nature.com. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.